prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Guillermo del Toro returns to talk about his new noir thriller, Nightmare Alley. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Well, we've got another fantastic filmmaker making their return, their triumphant return to the podcast. I will say triumphant because this is his first time back on the pod since The Shape of Water, his last film, which of course won like all the big Oscars. So this is a guy, Guillermo del Toro, who lives and breathes movie, movies. He was put on this earth to make gorgeous movies that are haunting and mesmerizing and dark and romantic. And his latest fits the bill. Though I think it's more on the dark side than the romantic side. This may be Guillermo del Toro's darkest film yet. Uh, Nightmare Alley is the movie. It has an amazing cast, guys, uh, led by Bradley Cooper as a... What, how to describe Stan? Um, well, he's a bit of a con man, isn't he? He's, a, he's an untrustworthy leading man, if I ever saw one. Uh, but this is a man who finds himself in the carny world and really goes on a journey. The first half of the film is, set, is, is in one setting, this carnival setting, and then the second half is in a much different kind of thing. Um, it is augmented with these fantastic supporting performances from... Kate Blanchett, who is just made for this kind of movie, this noir film. Uh, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, of course, you can't make a Guillermo movie without Ron Perlman. David Strathairn, Willem Dafoe, Mary Steenburgen, Richard Jenkins, the, the list goes on and on. Um, production design, cinematography, obviously top-notch. This is just gorgeous movie making and kind of a haunting movie, I will say. It ends with a really revelatory kind of scene, a bravura piece of acting from Bradley Cooper. I'm not ruining it, don't worry, it's okay. Um, but uh, I, I highly recommend this one. I mean, every Guillermo del Toro movie is worth a look or two. I, I know I will return to this one. So I um, hope you guys get a chance to check out Nightmare Alley uh, in theaters if you're feeling safe wherever you are. Um, as for this conversation, always a bit of a masterclass when you're talking to Guillermo. Um, we, t we touch upon a great many things, including the tough conditions that went into making this movie, but also where he's at in his career, the kinds of movies he wants to make post Shape of Water, um, the, the films that have gotten away, like Justice League Dark, uh, the films to come, like his Pinocchio, uh, which is well into production and coming, I believe, next year on Netflix. Um, and his comfort movie, which I was delighted to, to see was a Michael Mann movie and one of my all-time favorites. So stay tuned for that. Like I said, this is just one of those guys you want to hear talk movies. Guillermo knows his shit like nobody else. So um, enjoy this chat. Uh, as for other stuff, I mean, I, where, where to begin in pop culture right now? This is the, the, like arguably the best time of year because all the good movies are out. There's a ton of TV out there. Um, on the TV front, uh, if you're a Witcher fan, the new season is out. I mentioned that because I got a chance to catch up with Henry Cavill uh, for a Q&A the other day, and I'm really just delighted in kind of getting to know Henry that much more in recent years. He's been very kind to me, really kind of requesting me for special events. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know, and exciting to see his passion for that material. And I've seen the passion of the fans out there. If you're into Witcher, like you are all into Witcher. So uh, happy for Henry on, on that count. Um, tons of other big movies out there, whether it's Spider-Man or Matrix or 
Kingsman, or if you want animated, you want to go see the new Sing movie. Um, there's something for everybody out there right now. So I hope you're getting a chance to enjoy movies or, or movies in your home. Um, and most importantly, I hope you're enjoying a little time off, I hope. I hope you're getting a chance to see some friends and family. And most importantly, I hope you're staying safe out there. If you haven't gotten that booster shot yet, get it, guys. I don't know about you, but here in New York City, it's been a little scary. See the numbers spike up with Omicron. Um, you know, you kind of feel it when you know people that you know or one degree away getting it, and it feels like it's out there. So, uh, you know, <laughs> just be vigilant, guys. Be safe out there. Um, all right, on to a little escapism in the form of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Say, Confused. I don't say that enough. I, we, I, I, we want your reviews on iTunes, guys. Take a pause right now. Pause the podcast. Go over to iTunes. Give us a good rating. Write a delightful review. Spread the good word. Don't be selfish. It's not just for you. Um, but, uh, in the meantime, now that you're back after you've written your delightful review, thank you, um, enjoy this conversation with one of the greats, Mr. Guillermo del Toro. It is always a pleasure to have, uh, the one and only Mr. Guillermo del Toro back where he belongs on my podcast. It's good to see you, man. I like that. Same here, man. Uh, congratulations on the film. Nightmare Alley is, uh, another gorgeous gorgeous piece of filmmaking and it is just packed with amazing performances we're going to get into all of it um before we go there though this is our first extended chat since shape of water belated much belated congratulations yeah. on that ride um thank you i'm just curious like as the guy that perpetually maybe was viewed or viewed himself as an outsider was it a little bit of like a a strange circumstance to suddenly be like at the center and celebrate it and, and now like, I don't know, be on the other side of it. What's that? What was that like? Well, you know, you, 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 you enjoy it. So as long as you know, you, you're going to then leave the building, you know, I mean, I, I, I no, no sooner did I occupy that moment uh, than I decided to vacate the premises. So to speak. Right. Oh. Uh, because I think the, the uh, and I say this about Nightmare Alley, I think success is a very dangerous thing. It's something that should come with a cautionary label, and and if you buy into it, you you can get really really disoriented. Fortunately for me, <laughs> it took almost thirty years for uh, for that moment to come. You know, yeah. and 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 that gives you a little bit more grounding. I don't know if that had happened to me in the 20s or the 30s, it would have been uh, quite quite a spin because then you start second guessing yourself and you try to repeat what got you there. And uh, frankly, I couldn't have gone in the, into a more uh, into a more varied direction than with Nine Morales. No, totally. I mean, you could imagine people being very easily, and we've had this conversation before, seduced by like all these like shiny. IP, et cetera. And, you yeah. know, um, yeah. if anything in recent years, I mean, Crimson post-Pacific Rim, like all your stuff has gotten kind of weirder and more esoteric and more kind of like yeah. singularly yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. No, it, that, that's the thing. I believe that, uh, I, I mean, I was obviously tempted before many, many times. I was tempted very much, uh, before Pan's Labyrinth and, uh, 
after uh, a blade and uh, I, I was very tempted after shape of water naturally but uh, by things that looked shiny and new and and i really what i what i've decided a while ago and i think maybe we even talked about it about 10 years ago i decided look i'm going to go into an apprenticeship in which i'm going to try to uh, recuperate all the love and the practice of animation which was my childhood mm -hmm. I'm gonna try with Pinocchio and then, and I'm gonna just do animation and really, and the weird movies that no one else would do. That includes Nightmare Alley in a sense, because it's a, it's a, it's a movie that is a sort of a God punch. It's not a, it's not a pleasing uh, movie. It's beautiful to look at, but it's beautiful to look at in order to deliver <laughs> A, 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 a big left and a right, hopefully. Well, and it's interesting because, again, this is dovetails with stuff we've talked about before, but like from the outside looking in, some people have have thought like you as, as like a dark filmmaker. But if anything, we've talked about this, how you have been by and large a romantic kind of filmmaker. And this, I, yeah. I would say, is, is you going dark. This is the darkest part of the soul that you are truly yes. exploring. Um, oh, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. Does that reflect a yeah. little bit of like, the fucked up state of the world that we were in, like where your head was at and what you were seeing outside your window. Yeah, yeah is what I see in so many ways. Look, I, I, I've said always about the, the movies I make, I always say the monster is man, you know, the monster is us. And, uh, and I thought, well, let's try it. Let's try it without the, without the whimsy. Let's try it without the, the, the beauty of creatures and fantasy. Uh, let's try to do a, a really almost Jungian fable this time, you know. And 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 uh, I think it's a story rife with reflections about how cruel we are to each other, how we um, have engaged into a blurry line between lies and truth, uh, and we seem to just uh, nurture from systems that are closed systems that just reinforce or bias. And, they, and, and we separate almost into tribes very easily. And, and that worries me a lot because uh, I think it's, it's, it's a reckoning in, in, in the way we communicate. Is we thrive in the dialectic of life yeah. and we're losing that. Talk to me a little bit about, let's talk about the circumstances of making this um, because it feels like You've had some productions that have been tough over the years, and maybe you thought like, okay, I'm, I'm through it. Now I've got like the budget that I need, and I'm I'm in a good spot. And then of course this turns out to be, I don't know. You tell me, arguably maybe one of the the, the toughest productions for obvious reasons. Um, give me a sense of, of mm -hmm. what it was like to shoot and shut down and come back. Was it? Did it just like screw with you? Did it help the project? What was the process like for you in the end? Well, I, I, I must say, in many, many ways, it was the most difficult movie to make, in many ways. In others, it was the most joyful, you know, on the, on the plus side. And I think this had to, a lot to do with recuperating from the setback. Uh, the partnership with Bradley was intense and beautiful because it, we could sustain each other. Uh, Miles, Bradley, and I, we made a... A really system, a system and a core that allowed us to 
restart the movie and stay on the course. And it was great to have a guy that has produced, that has directed, that understood what we had left, what, uh, how we had it left, uh, how to proceed, blah, blah, blah. But the, the reality is that everything else, uh, even before the pandemic hit, everything else was very tough. We were trying to, to achieve a certain grandeur uh, with the period, you know, we were basically producing two films, right. one one that ends in the middle with a happy ending. I, 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 the, I underline it with a crane that goes to the sky and everything. He gets everything. And then you go to the second film, uh, which is the city. And now we are having to restart basically a new look and a new uh, set of wardrobe and a new set of props and a new set of reality to put this character in and and uh, that was complicated location was complicated rain hurricane level winds snow freezing temperatures all all of that and right when we were thinking we're we're past the worst uh the pandemic uh, hit and we had to stop right and as i understand it ironically you did kind of the intimate character stuff before the pandemic and then of course you have to do the giant scale stuff hundreds hundreds of extras hundreds of extras and 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 the, the complexity imagine that you multiply hundreds of extras for hundreds of people servicing each extra wardrobe props hair makeup so we had to devise a system that applied 15,000 covid tests to the to the cast and crew and we had to divide zones um, we had to make a plan for economically making that feasible uh, and from a sanitary point of view, keeping everybody uh, healthy and safe. Yeah. You know, it was, it, was, it was not easy. At the same time, the blessing or the silver lining, if you would, <laughs> not to do wordplay with Bradley's uh, filmography, <laughs> silver linings of this was that we were able to, to assess very carefully what we had done, which was the second half almost complete. Right. And we saw where we needed to take Stan and Molly and, and, and their love and their lack of um, sort of perspective of where they were going. So we made a slightly more useful Stan, a slightly more full of possibilities. Uh, he, uh, Bradley was able to lose 15 pounds for the part I was able to gain 60 pounds from the pandemic. <laughs> we, we, we all did, don't so, you? <laughs> I, I, was, I was like the raging bull of directors. <laughs> he's I, he's I, method. I was, yeah. I was method, you know? Um, Bradley's performance is remarkable in this. I mean, he's always fantastic. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're, we're not going to ruin the ending. But this is a film that really rests on the ending. On the and, and many yeah. people have said this. It's the, the last scene is just haunting and it will stick with you. And if you don't nail that, the movie doesn't work. And I know it was important to you. Um, mm -hmm. how, uh, what is that like as a filmmaker to know like literally your film rests on a single scene? <laughs> yeah, in a single shot, actually. Uh, well, we, we agreed very clearly that the whole movie was prologue to that shot. Yeah. And that everything that, and, and one of the things is uh, Kim Morgan and I agreed that the movie was going to be structured in a circular way, so to speak. So at the end, uh, the character is having a, a break and then you could loop the movie and he's remembering the opening image and the movie starts over in an endless loop. Right. And, and um, 
this necessitated abandoning everything a little earlier. We abandoned the score. We abandoned uh, expressive sound design. We go into complete silence and just a very almost sacred moment between the lens and the actor. You know, there's no more adornments. There's no cuts. There's no cranes. There's nothing. It's just the actor emotionally naked. And we thought, uh, you know, uh, we'll carry that set. It was a small set. We'll carry that set for weeks and weeks and weeks. And if we need to reshoot it, we'll reshoot it. Uh, and one day, without expecting it, and no one was prepared, Miles uh, comes to, to us and says, either we shoot the ending or we lose a day because we have hurricane-level winds coming for the carnival and we cannot have the cranes up or, or the crew safely there. So with, uh, we went into a barn, into a barn, not even a proper soundstage. And if, if you pay attention, you can hear in the daily the, the wind howling and rattling the metal sheets. And we shot Bradley's final close-up for the movie, which, uh, and we hope for the best. We did a couple of rehearsal takes, or, and this was the first complete take. Um, and that's the one that stayed. That's the one that stayed. First try, really. First try, the, 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 the take stayed. It's fascinating to hear you talk about, like, yes, yeah, stripping away kind of the bells and whistles, because, like, that takes confidence of a filmmaker that's kind of been through it. Like, I, don't, I wonder if the Guillermo 20 years ago that, like, any young filmmaker had something to prove and wanted to, like, pull out all the stops would have had the confidence to say, to serve this scene, to serve this moment, separate all that other stuff out. This is about the performance I, and that moment. I don't think so. I don't think so in the same way. I mean, the movie that this is most closely related for me in an experiential uh, way is Devil's Backbone, where, where the, it was a very dry movie right. in a strange way. And it was all about the reality of it all, more than the, the whimsy, if you would. And, but the... I could do this uh, because Bradley is that much a guy that brings reality. You know, yeah. this is this is what I I really uh, accommodated uh, the idea of uh, observing in this movie I, and listening in this movie. It was so great to see. I usually, and you know, we have talked about this, Josh. Is I usually shoot little pieces. I don't shoot coverage per se right. except in a diner scene or uh, you know in a, in, in a long conversation but normally I should and I, I used to pride myself saying I just should literally edit on camera in this movie I would storyboard everything and then every single shot I would run like a master wow. because because I learned that when I saw Bradley become uh, Stanton with Kate Blanchett and all of a sudden, I was watching a movie. I was not making a movie. I was watching a movie. And I said, why do I cut? And I, I was on the earphone with the, the crane, the crane operator. And I said, keep going. Go up. Go to the left. Now run. You know, and, we, and we ran the whole scene. Nobody knew that we were going to do that. And from that day on, I ran the scene. So by the time we get to this shot, I know that the moment that invocation of reality happens in front of the lens, I could trust that it would feel real, that it was real. And when this take ended, 
we were we both were uh, had tears on our eyes. I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Kate. I mean, the cast is amazing from start to finish. But Kate Blanchett, I mean, as to the surprise of no one, is just perfection in this. It's like she is born for this kind of a role, and just more than holds her own against. Uh, uh, yeah, well, without revealing too much, she's amazing. Um, do you do you relate to the to the to the liar to the con artist? I mean, you many have called filmmaking, you know, a con in some ways. You're conning the audience, you're manipulating an audience in the best possible way. Um, are you generally mm-hmm. the person that is gullible or the person that is putting one over on someone else? How do you view yourself? Well, well, I think I think that neither am both because uh, here's the the paradox of art. The paradox of art is finding truth through an artifice. Right. I, I would say that the element that is not there is the lie. The con artist knows that what, what is being sold is uh, not real. Right. Uh, what, what we try to create is real. We create a reality. And I, I always think about that uh, beautiful paradox of the painting of Magritte, where there is a pipe and is this is not a pipe, but it is but it isn't, but he's saying it isn't. So therefore he's sincere. Right. And, you know, the, the greatest difference is that the con artist tries to, in reality, in our dimension, simulate an emotional thing or a, or a, a plausible thing that he knows is not true. We invite you to a space in which we both tacitly agree that it's not real, but that we can find truth. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, unless you're making, like the only thing I can say is there is some filmmaking that uh, for me, there's more, there's more uh, danger in a romantic comedy that, or, a, or a shampoo commercial than in the entirety uh, existential cinema. <laughs> I understand. I understand you have a, a black and white version in mind for this. I mean, I remember Shape of Water, you yeah. originally intended to do it in black and white. So clearly you've been yeah. thinking about this for different projects. Um, yeah, I, I, that, that's the other thing the pandemic brought because uh, uh, when, when the pandemic happened, I started seeing the cod and the dailies in black and white because we are directed very much uh, and lit in favor of uh, that, almost like a serigraph in black and white and then the colors on another pass uh, and we when i was an apprentice to uh, gabriel figueroa like a pa on a movie and i became his mascot gabriel figueroa was the greatest cinematographer in the history of mexico and very good friends with greg toland for example you know and and he said to me you have to art direct on reds greens and golds because they give you uh, all the midtones in gray mm. Uh, and and I and I thought, well, I'll, I'll we'll do that with this movie, but without any hope to make it in black and white. Then the key for me was Kate Blanchett, because she was she was literally like almost like in a voodoo ceremony, being possessed by every great actress from classic cinema. You can the way she moved, yeah. the way she fit the frame. I was so seduced by that <laughs> that I thought. All right, let me look at it in black and white, black and white. And, and I started looking at it. And by the time we went to the carnival, I would view dailies, uh, only me, in my computer. Uh, the Macintosh has a little filter called grayscale. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would watch the dailies like that. And I would show them to Kim and say, oh, my God, 
maybe, maybe. <laughs> I didn't think I would. I could convince anyone, but Kate was the key because she is. I think she was born to play this part. Yeah. So what's the fate? Yeah. What's the fate of the black and white version? When, when, and where are we going to see it? Mm, I, I had to finish it because uh, I mean I finished this movie so late. I was color correcting about five weeks ago. I was color correcting, you know. Yeah. So I, I did one pass on the black and white with a brilliant uh, colorist, uh, Stefan Sonnenfeld. Um, and Stefan said to me, uh, we need one more pass because, you know, uh, the, we, were even, we were able to even the temperature of all the mid-tones and the blacks, uh, but we need, I still see a little bit of cyan or yellow on the, on the highlights. Yeah. And that, com that comes from the fact that we didn't shoot it native. If you shoot it native black and white, that's one thing. But going from color to black and white is ironically one of the toughest coloring jobs <laughs> you can, because there's always, it's very hard to get the pure uh, white in the highlights. Right. There's always contamination. I, uh, I always enjoy uh, reading who's thanked in the credits. One that jumped out at me. Uh, did you show this to JJ Abrams? How did he help? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, JJ and I have been friends for 30 years, approximately. You know, uh, we met actually in 1989 or 1990. Right. When he was like and, writing regarding Henry at 14 years old, basically like. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, I, we went through Dick Smith and he said, oh, you should meet this kid. It's really, really bright. And he just sold his first screenplay which is exactly regarding Henry. And I met with JJ, who, who basically wanted to, to be um, Jim Brooks. Back then he was talking about uh, doing <laughs> uh, like character-oriented uh, melodramas yeah. and all that. But, but he was a fan. We both uh, took the course of, of makeup effects because we wanted to create monsters. He, like, I, like me, is a model, model painter, kid model painter. And so I knew he knows and I know that if I invite him to my uh, editing room or him, me to his, we're going to be brutal. And he was very brutal. <laughs> you were, he was very brutal. You were thanked. I mean, I look, I, I've seen a lot of filmmakers thanked in credits. There is a section on your film, on your IMDb, you were thanked in 83 different projects over the years, short really? films, <laughs> features, like, so that speaks highly of you, sir. Obviously you make yourself available to other filmmakers. Is the, What's the most frequent way you're contributing to other people's stuff? Is it simply putting an, an eye on it in the edits? Is it, well, how does it manifest? I think, I think that you, you have to run a very open editing room because you have to, to the people that you trust, you have to be open for them to grind your movie and, and shake it brutally. And if they're willing to put the time, you know, you open the editing room. Yeah. And I, I take the same privilege when like, but I, I meet with the filmmaker and I say, what do you need? Do you need a cheerleader? Do you need a, a, a beastly, brutal editor? Do you need a uh, little notes about tone or character or and the filmmaker talks and then I say okay let's watch the movie and then we watch it and I try to provide the incredible wisdom that comes from being on the outside yeah because every filmmaker gets a snow blind of course and then in comes another guy that thinks uh, you know I have the genius perspective I come from the outside and in reality 
it is the genius perspective. Yeah. But because you, you didn't go through, like the best crane always goes. The best shot on a sequence always goes. Often, you fall in love with your, yeah, kill your darlings, yeah. right? Yeah. I remember seeing the cut of Titanic with Jim and, 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 and seeing a sequence that I thought was virtuoso, which is the chase uh, through the inclined uh, dining room of DiCaprio, uh, uh, you know, being chased by David Warner. And, and I thought, oh my God, this is the, the best piece. And Jim says, yeah, but it gets in the way of the flow. And I have a saying that I say, character is king and rhythm is queen. <laughs> you know, and if it gets in the way of the flow on the rhythm, you take it out. Speaking of Jim, has he clued you into the uh, the Avatar films? Have you snuck into the edit on those? No, not yet in the edit, but I know what they are. I know the designs and he would kill me if I said anything. <laughs> I mean, I always say. He literally, he, literally, he literally, I think if I started the dog, a little dog would appear. <laughs> A laser dot would appear in my phone. You know the cynics out there that are like, oh, two more Avatar films. I'm like, when has Jim Cameron let you down? When Trust in Jim Cameron. How many times do you need to be proven wrong? He'll take care of you. I, I tell you, I, I've, been, I've been with him through it three times. Three times in which nobody, everybody was naysaying. True lies, too expensive. No one, who's going to go? Blah, blah, blah. Titanic, what a... What yeah. a folly, yeah. too expensive, too avatar, all oh, blue people. And you know what? He has a he has, he has an, a, an insane connection with the side guys. Yeah. And he is, uh, the other day somebody was saying, who's the most articulate filmmaker you've ever met? And I said, well, Jim, because Jim, you can be having dinner and then he discusses uh, fractals or astrophysics. <laughs> And then two seconds later, you you talk about an like I remember talking about uh, Hellboy with him, and he, I said, yeah, there was this explosion in Siberia, and I'm using he says you the Tunguska forest explosion, which happened in so and so, and you he started dissecting the historical period. And I go, oh yeah, I'll, I'll show. <laughs> if he weren't if he weren't so talented, he would be horrible to be around. But we 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 believe in him, Cameron. Speak, speaking, I think yeah. I think I think he could lead an, a space exploration. For real, I yeah. mean, he could. He could correct the NASA rockets and <laughs> get Elon Musk out and put James Cameron in. Um, speaking of great filmmakers, whatever happened to your? You were working on something with Michael Mann on a Michael Mann doc. Is that still yeah. out there? Well, I wanted to do it, uh, and then uh, we started Nightmare, and I thought, when Nightmare ends, I'll do it. And then came the pandemic, right. so now three years have passed. I want to do it only because. Uh, Michael is, uh, I think, uh, a, a treasured American filmmaker. He embodies the tradition of so many great filmmakers and renovates it, you know. And, and I think uh, I want to talk formally with him and George Miller because I think form in their films uh, is so, so fused uh, with content in a way that, that needs to be unpacked a little for people to appreciate how incredibly difficult it is. Like, and the other day I went to see West Side Story and I, I started, as I often do with, with, with Spielberg, I, I started to figure out the shots and how, and then all of a sudden there were like three, four shots in a row that I couldn't figure out, number one. And number two, I just started to cry. Yeah, you got lost. And I said, you know what, you know what? 
just watch surrender man yeah what, what surrender yeah you'll, you'll figure it out now and then there's a couple of the uh, in the dance um in the gym dance and there's a couple in the when they're walking down the street there's a way in which the lens uh goes by them that that i i gotta ask what instrument it was like for example when they enter the gym yeah there's a small crane uh, close to the ceiling with them. And then all of a sudden, that same camera soars up into the gym. And, and, and people don't think, I mean, I think, what is the rig? What is the rig? Is it, is it a cable cam? If it, it, then it would need to go in a linear. You know, if, it's a, if it's a techno, how is it into the corridor? If it's a, not a techno, it cannot be a drone shot because you cannot operate the drone that close to walls and ceiling and all that. So you have to, and I finally just say, Man, you know what? <laughs> I like the idea of like, you're like, stop the film. I have questions. And then like, okay, fine. Let him take me on the ride. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. But but you create shots for, not for, not, you're not trying to show off. Sure. I don't think any of the, I mean, the wisdom of uh, Miller or the wisdom of Mann or Spielberg is that those shots, remain invisible to the audience if if you if you make tables you look at the grain in the wood no one else does you know one of the great pleasures i had right before the pandemic i was doing a series called on location where i would go to sets or or, or locations that filmmakers shot on and i went to where the bank for heat where he shot the the shootout on the street and had him walk me through he walked me through the entire sequence and it was like this is it. I peaked. It was, uh, it was amazing. So I hope you get a chance to send me a link. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I will. I will. Um, please, please. Um, there was some buzz the other day when you were at the game awards that you were hinting at something with silent Hill. Are you, are you doing anything with silent Hill? No, not, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I just, I just look, it's just one of those things in my life that makes no sense. (laughs) So I, I kind of uh, just wanted to, to, to uh, tickle the ribs of Konami a little Can't bit. Help yourself. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, that was so perfect. It was so perfect. The match, we, what we were going to do was so en- enthralling. Anyway, but, but Kojima, Kojima is uh, one of the guys that is a filmmaker. And, and, and what we were talking about a minute ago, I love talking to filmmakers yeah. and the storytellers and, and, and gaming. Uh, as a storytelling exercise fascinates me. I would, I would not develop a game, I don't think, again, because I'm the albatross of video gaming. Like we've talked about I, it before. I yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know whatever I do will, will, but I am very intrigued by, by the devices and how you learn them. Um, one, of, one of the films that came and went that you were associated with, uh, that I assume is probably just down a different path now, that, that I always wonder about, I don't know if you're willing to, to talk about it at all, but like, what was the Justice League Dark movie going to be? Were you passionate about that one? Do you, is that like a oh, fun? Well, I, look, me, myself, I, I never get involved if I'm not passionate because it's, it's incredibly difficult anyway, you know? And I think if you, 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 you don't go into a loveless marriage. Right, you better have passion in the first day. If not, then you're, <laughs> yeah, you, you're screwed. You have, to say, you have to say I do and knowing you're committing to at least a year. Yeah. Uh, in the screenplay stage, if you make the movies three to four years, yeah. five years or more. So, no, I, the, I think the screenplay, one version of it is on the online. And it, what it was, it was for me mm, trying to 
find the perfect balance uh, of the chemistries of these characters. I took a little bit of the opening of, uh, uh, you know, the Alan Moore Constantine, and I took uh, the dynamics uh, between Abby and and the Swamp Thing, you know, and I took the 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 sort of revelatory moments when Deadman gets into a, a body, how how he would experience the 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 consciousness of that being, blah blah blah, and and my one of my all time favorites is a demon Etrigan, mm-hmm. and it's a lot, and I, and I love that character, and I, you know, you, so you try to put them together. Zatanna, Zatanna is really uh, for me uh, another character that is. Uh, is is really effortlessly powerful and and interesting. So trying to mix that with Clarion, the witch boy, with everything. I mean, look, I was a DC guy when I was a kid. Oh, sorry. No worries. I I was a DC guy um, growing up, and those are the characters I love the most and I know the most. I'm I'm even a DC guy... um, in regards of liking the monsters, they had a like Marvel had Man Thing and Morbius uh, and this and that. But for me, the sort of melancholy and beauty of Swamp Thing, both the classic Len Wein and uh, Wright's on one and, yeah. and the reinvented uh, more beset and Tuttlebine yep. uh, creature, it's a great creature. Is is I think one of the great creations. Of of comic books. Uh, I'm curious. So you talked about the collaboration with Bradley on this. I know. I know for a, a second you were talking to Leonardo DiCaprio, and you've talked to Leo over the mm-hmm. years. And I know uh, you were you're, you were maybe our buddies with Ryan Gosling. Are those two guys you're still talking to about projects? Is it a matter of time for? Is there anything in mind for Leo or Ryan at this point? Or yeah, but but uh, what what happens with me is. Um, I, I'm, I, I know it doesn't look like it and from the outside, but I, I, I kind of slow down, yeah. you know, I know it doesn't look like it, <laughs> but, but I, 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 you know, I, I want to do, uh, um, you know, I, I, I had a grand experiment, which we discussed, which was to take producerial roles on at DreamWorks and then create Trollhunters universe. Right which was really, really, really uh, one of the things I'm the proudest of, if, if, if you don't mind making the parenthesis, that I'm so proud of the Trollhunters universe as I am of Pan's Labyrinth or anything else. I think it had the, it, we took a, like a very paradigmic um, superhero or hero story and explored everything that could go right, wrong. Right. Made the characters into living living and breathing uh, humans almost, you know, like, uh, so, you know, now I'm, I, I, I don't have uh, that. I have a TV series that I'm finishing. I have Pinocchio that is finishing. I'm starting research on my next project. And that for me is it's plenty. Really, really <laughs> yeah. um, I asked you at the outset uh, to maybe think of a, a comfort movie. I've been asking folks the last two years because it's always very telling. I'm sure you have a thousand different movies you could pick. Does one come to mind that you you return to for comfort for any particular reason? You know, it's, it's strange because it, it doesn't make sense for it to be. It's not a, it's like the movie I... I can watch Heat 
no matter what. That's a great one. That yeah. I really, I really think, uh, and very, very often, I just put heat on the on the TV, or you know, it's not that it's background because I always pay attention, but I can catch it at any moment. And there's, it's one of those movies that doesn't have, is never on cruise control. Yeah. Well, it's always delivering. And the other one, which is also strange, but that tells you about Michael Mann is a thief. Yep, James Caan, of course. And and the third one uh, would be Road Warrior. The fourth one would be <laughs> Duel, Steven Spielberg's Duel. And uh, I think um, the fifth one is, is a movie I visit often, but it's not comfort. It always leaves me trembling. Uh, which is uh, Frankenstein. Yes, but but it's more than comfort. That one is like Catholics go to church on Sundays. <laughs> I go to Frankenstein. Often. Does some of your long uh, brewing Frankenstein projects seep into Pinocchio in some ways? Is there some overlap? Well, the, the, they are the same story in a way, but they're very different. I mean, the Pinocchio, the Pinocchio that I'm doing, and we've been pursuing for about 15 right. years, you know, it's finally coming to, to fruition. And I think it's a very intimate story because I, when I was a kid, uh, I identified with Pinocchio and I, and I, and I really felt uh, that it was the same story as Frankenstein. What it is about, if I, if, if I say it, I hope people discover the movie, I think it's a very different version of it, of the tale. We keep the the basics, the tenets, but I, I don't know. Um, I do relate them, but I still think the two halves of the tale need each other to complete the thought. Right. Uh, last thing, would you indulge me to dive a little bit deeper into Heat for a second? Is there is there a sequence in there that jumps out as uh, what... I mean, it's as you said, every, there's no moment in that film that is lazy filmmaking, but like what's a sequence or two or an aspect or two that jumps out that makes it such a exceptional piece of work? Well, look, you have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I don't know if you do. <laughs> well, no, but I can tell you this, like uh, most people will go to the bank robbery, which is a paradigmic uh, uh, and it influences and resonates through the years, you see it on an action movie. You see it on on, on Nolan's Batman. Yep. You see it. You see it resonating everywhere. But there's things that are invisible. Almost uh, for me, when they are when they come out of the coffee shop, and they're gonna take Wengro into the into the trunk, the timing and the elegance of the camera in that sequence is like a metronome. Is uh, it's like when people talk about Hitchcock, they always talk about the murder in the shower in Psycho, or any of the big moments. And I always think about the sequence of uh, Cary Grant carrying Ingrid Bergman down the staircase in Notorious, mm. because I always think is the metronome. He has a limited number of steps, and he knows what needs to happen on each step. And how he's gonna cut it, he cannot cheat. Right. It's a linear staircase, and he has to cut X number of times to convey the POV, 
the, the intimate moment of her whispering to him. He has to do that in the space of a Sebastian getting agitated. And the same thing happens to me in the coffee shop with the green girl is they, it has to happen from the walk to the cop moving away in the street. And then uh, you have to convey it. And, and the trick is you have to be so taken by the cop going by that Wengro escapes you. Yeah. But you go, ah, you went away. <laughs> that effect. And I talk about effect in the way magicians talk about effect. You know, look, I'm getting very noir. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> On brand. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think the effect of Wengro disappearing is so beautiful. Yeah. It's one of those, when, when you, When you like magic, as I do, the one of the hardest ones is close-up magic, chamber magic, and and that's chamber magic, a very tight space of of time and geography in which to you have to pull a trick of misdirection. You look at the cop. I'm gonna take Wingro. It's so beautiful, and I I love that moment. Uh, I could talk Michael Mann and George Miller and Nightmare Alley all day with you, my friend. Congratulations on this new one. It's a, another exceptional piece of work. And, and truly, I'm always Thank invigorated you. by our chats. And um, I appreciate all the time over the years, buddy. I'll see you on the next one. Same here, my friend. Be good. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>